I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. Thanks for being here with us in the final weeks of the show, as we're counting down to our last episode on June 2nd. We're continuing our Producer Appreciation Weeks. And in today's spotlight, Ryan Wild. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Melissa. This is exciting. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Ryan is going to stick around here at WNYC as a producer at the Green Space starting next month. But Ryan, when did you first get started in radio? Oh, yeah. So my first and very amateur start in radio was at 104.5 Ice Radio at McMurdo Station, which is in Antarctica, actually. Okay. What were you doing in Antarctica? So McMurdo is a National Science Foundation research station down there. And when I was 21, I was eager to see the world and I took a job washing dishes. Uh, and they have this volunteer-run radio station as well. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, but I just got on the air and played some records and chatted with some scientists and community members and broadcasted into what felt like the vast, empty void that is Antarctica. But you know, I have to ask the question, did you interview any penguins? <laughs> No penguins or polar bears. Everyone always gets that confused, too. Polar bears are in the Arctic, not the Antarctic. But here's a quick story. One time, we somehow managed to get William Shatner on the air uh, because there's a lot of Trekkies down there, naturally, science station. But none of us knew how to conduct an interview, and so I'm pretty sure I remember Captain Kirk just hanging up on us. Uh, it might have been in frustration, or maybe we lost connection, but either way, I don't blame him at all. This is terrifying idea. As an avowed Trekkie, I'm jealous. Now here on The Takeaway, you've made some great radio. So tell us about the recent political series that you've produced. Sure. So during the 2022 midterms, I pitched the Down Ballot series. And more recently, I've been leading the series on 23 mayors in 2023. Both come out of a similar impulse to tell political stories a little bit closer to the ground. Uh, previously, I worked on a few local public radio programs. And in that work, I really learned the impact that local politics has on our lives. And with these two series, I was trying to imagine a way that even if we aren't talking to your mayor or your city clerk, you can still get a sense of their jobs. You can still understand the important ways their decisions impact your life. And you can hopefully leave feeling a little more informed or more engaged and hopefully you can be a more active participant in the politics in your community. Uh, let's take a listen to a little bit of the Down Ballot series where we spoke to Alex Nimshevsky, the CEO of Ballot Ready, which is a nonpartisan resource where voters can find information about every race on their ballot. We know that about 30% of people don't complete their ballots, but also we know that a lot of people guess Many will say, oh, yeah, I wasn't sure about who to vote for for all these judges on my ballot. But we've also seen research that shows people guess based on the candidate names, gender, ethnicity, and sometimes even the order, the position that they are on the ballot. Candidates who are listed first on the ballot can receive up to a 5% increase in votes. So we know voters are not as prepared as they could be when they go to vote. I understand that part of your interest in this issue comes from a personal experience. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. In 2014, I was set to vote in those midterms, but I 
saw my ballot ahead of time and I saw there were 92 races on my ballot and I knew who I was going to vote for at the top of the ticket, but there were all these offices. I didn't even really understand what they do. Like water reclamation commissioner. I hadn't even heard of that before, let alone, I didn't know who the candidates were. So I felt frustrated. I, I knew my vote was powerful and I wanted to be able to confidently vote in all these races. So I made a website just for myself to keep track of what the candidates were saying, who was endorsing them, their stances on issues. And when I talked to people about this, it turned out this was not only a problem that I had. (laughs) Basically, everyone I talked to about it was like, oh, yeah, I don't know who to vote for. And I even talked to the mayor of a certain very large city who admitted (laughs) to guessing when he voted. I talked to political science professors who didn't know who to vote for in local elections. But it's a lot of information. So it, it is understandable that I'm not the only one who has faced this problem. This was such a fun series because of the kinds of folks we had a chance to talk with on air. A county clerk, a county coroner, a school board member, a local judge. Yeah, we wanted to understand what some of these locally elected leaders actually do, what their job entails, how voters can research their own local candidates, and what folks should think about when considering these candidates. We focused on folks who are either not up for re-election, running unopposed, or even retired, Um, more so that they could hopefully speak less like a candidate and more candidly about their work and experience. Let's listen to a bit of the conversation you had with Darnell Hartwell, Chief Deputy Coroner of Berkeley County, South Carolina. I have investigated well over 5,000 deaths, um, have several thousand hours of death investigating training, law enforcement training, medical um, investigating training. One of my campaign stumps was experience matters. And you would want your corner to be experienced. You want to be experienced in investigation. You want to be able to have community connections, uh, great relationships with law enforcement agencies, doctors, offices, hospitals. Throughout my career, I was able to build great relationships with all those entities here in Berkeley County. I was appreciating that on your website, you actually have a list of more than 30 trainings that you've been part of, and some of them made perfect sense to me, forensic death investigation, FEMA incident command. But the one that I have to say, I might just take a drive down and you might help me through this training. Number six training was working with difficult people. And I was like, well... (laughs) That does seem to be an important training in all kinds of contexts, including this one. Well, of course, you know, dealing with death every day, it brings out the worst in in people at times. And we have to be ready and equipped to handle the situations. And and more times than not, they just need a listening ear. Emotions are high at that time. And again, part of our job is to be that listening ear for these families, for these loved ones, because think about it. This is probably the worst day of their lives where they just got informed that they will never see their loved one again. And there's a hole now in their family that will never be closed again. And they have to learn to deal with that. And again, at times they just need a listening ear. And that's the job of Corners. Um, Corners has a difficult job. It's a calling, you know, with all the relationships I have with Corners, we don't do it for the money. It's definitely a calling on our lives to be able to, to serve in a position like this. Um, we constantly on the go. The phones are constantly going off. And again, 
it's a great job to have to be able to be there for the families. Now, I understand that you're running as a Republican, but what does political party have to do with this elected office? That's a tough question, but but I'm going to get the best answer that I can. Personally, I don't agree with it. Again, out of the thousands and thousands of deaths I have investigated or been a part of, when I knock on a loved one door to bring them the most horrific news, I never had the first family ask me what political party I belongs to. It doesn't matter. In a position of corner, our job is to serve all people. Our job is not to create laws. Our job is to just make sure that the laws that's on the book are seen through. And, and that's what we do as corners each and every day when we are here serving our constituents is just to make sure that they are being taken care of. And the laws that's already on the book that was put there by our governors, our senators, our representatives, our job is just to see to it that those laws are being handled and being handled the best that they can be. I got to admit, I found Mr. Hartwell fascinating. But my favorite down-ballot office holder came to us from Idaho. My name is Shiva Rajbandari, and I'm an 18-year-old member of the Boise School Board. Shiva was also a high school senior when he defeated an incumbent. Let's listen more. What made you make the decision to run for office? Gosh, I, I just think students belong really everywhere decisions are, are made, but particularly where decisions are made on education. I was part of a, a campaign to get a clean energy commitment and long-term sustainability plan in our school district, where over two years, we were reaching out to board members. Uh, we were asking for meetings. We were meeting with our, our power company and turning up the heat on, on our board members. And it just felt like we weren't getting the engagement that we deserved as students from our board, as if we as students weren't constituents hmm. of of the board of trustees when really we're the primary stakeholders in our education. So I set out to change that dynamic and, and show just how much students can bring to the table when we're given a seat. Speaking of being given a seat, do you think that should be potentially standard on school boards across the country? Yes, unequivocally, yes. Now, Shiva, did you run a full-fledged campaign? What does a campaign for school board look like, whether you're 18, 28, 58? My campaign was certainly full-fledged. We raised over $10,000 from over 150 donors. So it was completely a grassroots campaign. We knocked on over 5,000 doors, hired 15 paid door knockers. I'm really proud that we were able to hire students and pay them for, for their work. Um, we got endorsements from former Supreme Court Chief Justice in Idaho, Jim Jones, from legislators, from city council members, from candidates. And I think we saw the results, right? We won by 56%, 10,900 votes in the largest turnout election that the Boise School District Board has, has ever seen. Shiva was super inspiring. I've also been pretty inspired by some of the city leaders in our latest political series, 23 Mayors in 2023. Of course, Ryan, we branded that series before we knew that the takeaway was being canceled by execs here at WNYC. So there's no way we're going to hear from 23 mayors this year. But the ones we have spoken with are pretty great. Agreed. Like Wilmont Collins, the mayor of Helena, Montana. Mayor Collins has a really fascinating story. He was born, raised, and educated in war-torn Liberia, West Africa. 
He sadly lost two brothers to the war. He eventually managed to flee with his wife. And they ended up in Helena, where he is now mayor, in a city and state that is less than 1% black. Let's listen. I want to talk about democracy and what democracy means to you and for you as a Liberian refugee living in this crazy part of America that we call Montana. (laughs) Uh, Melissa, I'll tell you this. I did political science and sociology as an undergrad at the University of Liberia. My favorite subject was the American government because I saw that there were three uh, separate entities, the judiciary, the legislative, and the executive, and they worked together, but they were separate. Now, I didn't make it out to Helena, but it has been particularly insightful when I've had a chance to spend time in these cities with the mayors. And it's so revealing to kind of watch them interact with the city and with their constituents. Yeah, you really took the series to a whole nother level with those. To hear you in person, walking around these cities, to hear your footsteps, I felt like I was there too. Here's a clip of you with Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway of Madison, Wisconsin. And she took you on a little tour. So this is Monona Terrace. That's our community and convention center. Um, flanked by the state's uh, DHS building, Department of Health and Family Services and uh, the Madison Club and the Hilton, um, which is, has the room blocks for the convention center generally. Built in 1997, yeah. the convention well, center is based on plans designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in 1938. And Wright's aesthetic is instantly recognizable in the sweeping curves of the low-slung building that hugged the bends of Lake Monona, still frozen on a March afternoon. If I walked out on that lake right now, would it hold? It, it is that frozen, but it's on the edge of, um, I, I might not. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to look over on the bay. I think there's, there's there. still ice fishers on the bay, yeah, so that's how you know. Sure. Talk to me about indigenous communities mm. and their relationship with the lake. Yeah. So this is, um, we're on the ancestral lands of the Ho-Chunk Nation. They lived here all around the lakes um, for tens, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, And we actually have evidence of that now because we found in Lake Mendota a a diver from the Historical Society who was out for a recreational training dive found a dugout canoe. So this was two years ago, maybe. We did this this whole process. They found it and excavated it and brought it up and started to preserve it. And of course, the mayor of York, Pennsylvania was quite memorable, too. My name is Michael Ray Helfrich, and I'm the mayor of York, Pennsylvania. The reason why I said that this was the building to meet in, Mm -hmm. uh, because it represents a time period of the Victorian and early 20th century uh, industrial age when York was a real center of wealth creation, where people had ideas and then they took those ideas globally. And, and brought the money back here. So the buildings you see around here are a result of that, the beautiful architecture from, from basically the 1860s through the 1920s is really a result of that investment back into the community by those that uh, were given opportunities by the community. York is a place of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. <laughs> and while we can be a little bit rough and blue collar around here, 
we're also we can tell if people are really trying to change themselves improve themselves and so york gave me a chance i'm this isn't i guess the best thing to put on the resume but i'm the only mayor in pennsylvania that has felonies Now, Ryan, I understand that you're taking us back to Mason, Tennessee. Yeah, this was one of the first stories I produced here. I was just a couple weeks into the job and Vince Fairchild, our sound engineer, pitched this great story on how the state of Tennessee Comptroller was trying to take over financial control of this historic little town of Mason, Tennessee, population 1300. Initially, I thought we would just interview the vice mayor at the time, Virginia Rivers. Mason matters because we have been here, the majority of us, all our lives. This is our heritage. And we matter because we are a people. And we're not just somebody who you can just push over, walk over. We are just as important. And we we will survive this. But then it was clear that there was much more to this story, and it was clear that if we were going to understand what was happening in Mason in the moment, we needed to understand the town's history. I'm a John Marshall, and my family has been in Mason for six generations. John Marshall grew up in Mason. Now, his was one of those families that came to Mason from Virginia in the 1830s. His great-grandfather owned a cotton gin and was Mason's mayor in the 1920s. His grandfather had an insurance business in Mason, and his family still farms the area. Today, John works as a judicial magistrate in Memphis, but his first love is history. I suppose I got so interested in Mason by listening to my grandfather, who lived his entire life there from 1912 to when he died in 1993. Uh, He was a great storyteller and captivated my imagination when I was just a child. Uh, Knew everybody, of course, you know, black and white. And when I was still just a teenager, I started asking questions of older people in my family, of older black people as well. I, I was just very curious about how we were all interconnected. The fact that a lot of us had the same surnames was always interesting to me and the black and the white community and how that had all come about. Marshall got a master's degree in history from Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge before pursuing law. And as an amateur Mason historian, John has written two books about his hometown. These are the type of humble local history books you probably find on a dusty shelf at your municipal library, maybe not on the New York Times bestseller list. So the railroad came through in the 1850s, the Memphis to Ohio Railroad. And the old story is that it came right through Mr. Mason's pig pen. It was on his plantation and the railroad was coming right through where he had his hogs. So a lot of the early railroad engineers nicknamed the town Mason's Hog Pen. (laughs) It's not not a very pretty uh, name, but there's still a street in Mason today called Washington Avenue that all the locals refer to as Pig Alley. But very soon he gave land for a depot and hotels and stores started up and it was right on the eve of the Civil War. According to Marshall, census data from 1860 show that the areas around Mason were 75 to 80% black. And after the railroad came and then the Civil War, formerly enslaved people and their ancestors from Mason and its surrounding areas, well, they mostly stayed. And there 
always been inextricably linked to Mason's identity and to its self-determination. Okay, so the gist is that Mason had this 153-year-old charter, but the town had run into some financial problems under previous white leadership. The new black leadership said they were working to fix these financial issues. But the state comptroller stepped in and seized control over the town's finances. The timing was questionable. Let's listen to a clip. First, you'll hear Otis Sanford, a political columnist for The Daily Memphian. And then you'll hear Virginia Rivers again. It was originally called the Memphis Regional Megasite. And this regional megasite just happens to be located about five or so miles from Mason. It's a site that had been part of uh, development plans for the state of Tennessee for years. It's a lot of space out there. It's close to the interstate. And it's um, it was a choice location. And the state was just hoping to get some um, major manufacturing company to show some interest in it. And finally, uh, last year, after uh, a lot of money had been put into infrastructure there already, the governor of Tennessee, Bill Lee, announced that uh, Ford Motor Company had had agreed to build uh, an electric truck plant and battery assembly plant on that site, which is the biggest economic development project in Tennessee history. It's a $5.6 billion development. Ford's mega campus has been dubbed Blue Oval City because it will be, well, the size of a city. Massive, nearly 3,600 acres or six square miles. Ford says it will be a hive of innovation that will build a new generation of electric F-Series trucks and batteries. And Tennessee is even building an on-site trade school to train workers from surrounding areas. Set to be completed by 2025, Ford says the campus is going to bring an estimated 6,000 jobs directly to Blue Oval City and an estimated 26,000 jobs to the surrounding area as a whole. It would mean jobs because they're going to have a training site where people can go and be trained to work for them. So that means that our citizens will be able to have better jobs. Our town can have gas stations, grocery stores, so we can and we will grow in another five years if we be left alone by the controllers and allow the money to come to Mason that is rightfully Mason, that we rightfully deserve, that we'll be able to prosper just like any other city. Okay, Ryan, so it's been a year since the story originally aired. What's happened since? The residents of Mason, with the help of the local NAACP chapter, filed a lawsuit. They alleged racial discrimination and challenged the authority of the Tennessee Comptroller to take over Mason's finances. But they ended up reaching an agreement and dropped those lawsuits. And in that agreement was reportedly a more favorable arrangement. So as it stands right now, the Tennessee Comptroller still has a lot of control and oversight over Mason's finances. But at the time of the agreement, Mason officials said that the revised plan did give them a little bit more autonomy and breathing room. All right, we've got more coming up with producer Ryan Wild right after this. It's The Takeaway. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, 
A large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and I am still talking with Takeaway producer Ryan Wild. It's part of our Producer Appreciation Weeks. Hi, Melissa. Hey, Ryan. All right, so what kinds of stories do you find kind of most fulfilling to work on? I find it really rewarding when we're able to explore issues of social and environmental justice, um, but also center the people who are actually living through them. Talking with reporters and experts is great, but when we can hear directly from the people actually living through these experiences, I think the stories hold more truth and are all the more powerful. And one example of that is the segment you produced about the salmon people. Yeah. Let's listen to a clip from the segment to set this up. The Columbia River is home to uh, several Native American tribes that refer to themselves as the salmon people. My name is Katie Campbell. I'm a documentary filmmaker with ProPublica, and I'm director of the documentary film Salmon People, a Native fishing family's fight to preserve a way of life. The Yakima people have been fishing for salmon since time immemorial. It's been the bedrock of, of their economy. And it's it's not just something that it's not just a food that they eat. It is a major source of their diet, but it is also the basis of their cultural practices and their religious and spiritual practices. So, Ryan, you spoke with Randy Settler. He's featured in the documentary. Tell us about him. Right. So Randy is a Yakima tribal member and the Yakima's connection to the Columbia River and its salmon stretches far back into the past. My connection to this land knowing that if I look west, if I look north, if I look south, if I looked east, that our families are buried all along this river. Our ancestors are buried here and that there was great civilizations here of people who were able to do great things. We drank the river water. We bathed in the river water. We lived on the banks of the river year round. But unfortunately for the salmon people, their way of life is disappearing due to public policy, forced displacement, and broken treaties. And the salmon are also disappearing due to overdamming, overfishing, and climate change. I think Randy's stories really brought this issue to life. On the Yakima Reservation, I caught my first big fish when I was two or three years old. I was fishing with all um, my family, my brother, and other families that were uh, all around us, we were all related and got that fish up that was probably as big as me. I mean, in terms of length and the uh, oldest of the boys that was there, he told me that I had to give that fish to an elder and that was a custom and tradition. And so carried that fish up past our home and uh, gave it to his grandmother. Her name was Mary. And uh, that was my first catch. And 
she prayed for me and thanked me for the catch in our traditional language, our uh, Yakma Nation language, you know, and so my whole life's been about fishing. So, Ryan, tell me about talking with Randy. Uh, Randy was so wonderful. He lives in a really remote part of Washington State, and he still fishes every day. He's very much connected with his community and with the nature around him, and his appreciation for time is, like, quite different from many other people. He doesn't have internet, very little phone service. So it was a little bit of an adventure trying to schedule a time to speak with him, but we eventually got it figured out. And the first time we spoke was for two hours, and then a few weeks later, we recorded the interview, and that was another two or three hours, uh, all for maybe six or seven minutes worth of tape for this segment. And he shared with us the obstacles that his people have faced. Let's listen. The United States government removed people from the Columbia River forcefully to reservations, and those that wouldn't remove, they were um, killed and sold into slavery. That relocation happened into the 1940s when the government was building the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, where they built the atomic bombs. And those people that lived in those areas, bands of the Yakama Nation were removed, and bands of other tribes besides the Yakama Nation were removed. Throughout this history, the tribes of the Columbia River sought to have the treaties enforced through the courts. We, as tribal people, had to litigate even into the early 1900s, throughout the 1900s, where tribal people were trying to exercise their treaty rights to provide their ceremonial food and any kind of commercial opportunity that they had. So it's been a struggle, uh, not just for my family, but thousands of families to maintain that connection to the salmon. So, Ryan, where are things now? Well, despite many broken promises from the U.S. government, Randy has some hope for change. And the Biden administration has met directly with leaders of the Columbia River tribes. But the struggle continues. Uh, Here's another really beautiful story Randy shared with us, where he connects the perseverance of salmon with the perseverance of his people and their ongoing fight to preserve their way of life. There's this thinking that fish don't have no feelings. And I want to share what I've witnessed. And you can look at our our ancestral fishing grounds, the size of the falls that these salmon jump. And I've been on those banks, on those rocks, looking down in the water, and I've seen these fish jumping up those falls. It's truly amazing. And once in a while, you'll see a salmon that jumps and it gets hit by a different cascade of water. And it forces that salmon to the bank. It can't get back into the water. And I've seen those males come out of the water and bite onto those fins of that female and drag her back into the water. And it's truly remarkable to me to witness that. You talk about Wakanishmi Wakishwit, the spirit of the salmon. And these beings that have come back, these living things that we value so much and we've been linked to so long, when you are able to be as close to the resources I have and seeing their spiritual existence, 
to see their journeys, it's remarkable that no matter what I can say, until you see it, you can't really believe how these salmon care for each other. So Ryan, what's next for Randy Settler? Well, Randy invited us to go fishing with him. So I'm thinking we should all have a team takeaway reunion out with Randy someday. I would love that. All right, Ryan, I'm so thrilled we get an opportunity to re-air this next story because it was definitely you through and through. Tell us about the Ryan meetup. Yeah, this was so fun. It all started with a text message from a former colleague, and I had no idea what to expect, but figured, what the heck, I'll just go to this Ryan meetup and record and see what happens. Uh, I think a lot of our work on The Takeaway can be really serious and, you know, quite important, but I also love that there's always been room for some fun and joy here, too. I hope that this story provided some joy and levity for everyone. Uh, Unless, of course, your name is Brian. (laughs) Let's listen. (laughs) I got a text that said, Hey, Ryan, saw this today and thought of you. It included a photo of a flyer that said, Is your name Ryan? Want to meet other Ryans? Come to the Ryan Meetup. There was a QR code with details for the meetup. And below that, it said in no uncertain terms, No... Brian's allowed. Now, I've always felt fine about my name, I guess, but Ryan never felt like a super special name either. So I was intrigued. I had no idea what to expect, but maybe meeting a room full of Ryan's would boost my Ryan pride. And so, on a late March day, I found myself rolling up to a bar in Manhattan. The name of the place? Fittingly, Ryan McGuire's. Hey, how are you? Is your name Ryan too? No. My middle name's Ryan. Really? Your middle name's Ryan. I'll have a Ryan's lager. It seems apropos. And then you can start me a tab. Just put it under Ryan. Yeah. (laughs) With a Ryan lager in hand, I headed towards a room in the back where I saw about a dozen Ryans mingling. I'm here a bit early to interview Ryan Rose the organizer of this whole thing. Are you founder, Ryan? Uh, no, that would be Ryan Rowe. Ryan okay. Ryan. Oh, Ryan Wild. Thank you so much. Yeah. Do I get a name tag? You do get a name tag. Here you go. There's a table full of about 100 red Hello My Name Is name tags. Every one of them is already filled in with the name Ryan. I see three guys standing around in a circle. I nudge my way in. How are you doing? I'm Ryan. What's your name? Ryan. Ryan. Oh, I'm Ryan. I'm Ryan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Ryan's all around, but no Ryan Rose. Press on anyway. One of the Ryans speaks up. This is Ryan Sturt. So I'm trying to figure out what the commonalities are behind like the parents of the people who had named their children Ryan. So far we have an Irish culture. And now Ryan Neff jumps in. I think there were a lot of Ryans in the like late 80s, early 90s that, you know, the name had become really popular, but then like it fell out of style for some reason. I don't know why. It's a great name. That's my hypothesis. I noticed one person who really stood out amongst the group. Hey, I'm Ryan. Hey, Ryan. <laughs> What's your name? Uh, oh, Ryan. Your name's Ryan, too. Yeah. Wow. So tell me how you got to this meetup. Um, what do you mean? How it started? Oh, are you the Brian? I'm the Ryan. You're the Ryan. It's so nice to meet you. Yes. I admit, 
I foolishly assumed that Ryan Rose was going to be a guy. And I'm not the only one who makes this mistake. How was growing up with the name Ryan? You know, growing up I didn't like it too much because I'd always get mixed up as a guy. Like in, in one of my yearbooks in sophomore year, there was a picture of some other male and my name underneath. So like my ID for that year was just like not me. <laughs> and I'd always get like Boy Scout mail and I'd get mixed up in sporting events, being put in guys categories. But now I love it. I asked her, why bother with all of this? Uh, you know, it's not too deep. I just wanted to bring all the Ryans together. I thought it'd be fun. Only three Ryans showed up to the first meetup in February. So for this one, she put up over 500 flyers across the country. I recently did a road trip down to Texas, so everywhere along the way, I was like plastering Ryan flyers. I put them in front of the White House, every Waffle House, South by Southwest, Myrtle Beach, Bourbon Street. So this is a national movement. I'm trying to make it a national movement. One of the things I was very intrigued by with the flyer was no Brian's allowed. No, everyone loves a little drama. Also, in like the Ryan Brian realm, there's a constant battle of who's better than who. I soon found evidence of the Ryan meetup being a national phenomenon. My name is Ryan Hatfield. I'm 19 years old. So I'm coming up from Texas. Very excited for that. Are you visiting from Texas? Yes, indeed. Just for the Ryan meetup? I did. Oh, this is beautiful, yeah. Are there a lot of Ryans in Texas? I have met so many Ryans. In fact, my mom's maiden name is Ryan. Texas Ryan's story here reminded me of the origins of my own name, steeped in my own Irish heritage. Hi, Mom. Hi. Um, so tell me why you decided to name me Ryan. I think that we named you Ryan because it was in reference to your grandmother, and her name was Marcella Ryan. I think we wanted to honor her in that way. And I'm glad that we did because she was the most best example of unconditional love. So there you go. Lots of the Ryans were named after grandparents. I met one Ryan who was conceived in the room of their parents' friend named Ryan. Okay then. Okay then. Okay then. Some Ryans were named after other famous Ryans, like this Ryan. I'm actually named after two runners. Jim Ryan and Sebastian Coe. Sebastian's my middle name. And so Jim Ryan is my namesake. And because my dad is a long distance runner and very into physical fitness, so. On the home stretch, Ryan's long, effortless stride had taken him 30 yards ahead of Kano. At the tape, he'd smashed the world record by two and a half seconds. A tremendous win for Ryan. Jim Ryan was the first high schooler to run a sub four minute mile in 1964. In 1968, he won a silver medal at the Olympics. He later served as a congressman from Kansas for 10 years. Do you feel like there's a lot of pressure to run, to be running Ryan? Um, I was a running Ryan, and actually my last name is Dunning. Yeah, so my dad was running Dunning, I was also running Dunning. Yeah, so I kind of lived up to my namesake there. Jim Ryan's last name is actually spelled R-Y-U-N. Now. I applaud his parents for not naming him Ryan Ryan, but also he probably was never at risk of that. Ryan just wasn't a name parents were considering for their newborns in the 40s. The Social Security Administration tracks every name given to newborns. And in 1947, the year Jim Ryan was born, 
Ryan was the 689th most popular boy's name, behind names like Wilton, Benedict, Sherwood, Milford. You get the idea. It wasn't until the late 60s and 70s that the name Ryan really burst onto the scene. The name Ryan wasn't popular at all until the 1970s. My name is Cleveland Evans. I am a professor emeritus of psychology at Bellevue University and past president of the American Name Society. The American Name Society was founded in 1951 to promote onomastics. That's the scholarly study of names. He says that when parents are naming children, there are certain patterns that they follow. They always say they want to find something which is different, but not too different. So they're looking for something which sounds like something which was popular before. Ryan gained popularity on the heels of another popular name at the time. So Ryan, in a sense, got popular because Brian had previously become popular a generation before. So people were looking for an alternative to Brian, something that was new and cool, but sounded like Brian. Ah, I've stumbled upon the origins of the Ryan-Brian rivalry. But there are more reasons why Ryan catapulted up the baby name charts and into the hearts of new parents. When Ryan O'Neill first got famous on the TV show Peyton Place, it does its first little jump up in the 60s. And then in 1971, right after he becomes a huge megastar in Love Story. What would you say if I told you, I think I'm in love with you? Then it starts absolutely skyrocketing in the early 70s. And that's because everybody who was looking for this different but not too different alternative to Brian heard it at the same time by becoming aware of Brian O'Neill's existence, you know. Whether it was parents naming their kids after Ryan O'Neill or their runner Jim Ryan or some other reason entirely, the name Ryan hit the top 25 most popular boys' names in the 70s and stayed there for the next four decades. Now, the name Ryan has its origins in Ireland. Well, the name Ryan is a very old Irish name, so it's probably uh, at least a thousand years old and probably closer to 12 or 1300 years old. It's also found in the common Irish surname, O'Ryan, or simply Ryan without the O. My name is Michal O'Mannion, and I'm a professor of Irish and Celtic languages in Queen's University in Belfast. As English power in Ireland grew in the 17th century, Ryan became anglicized, and the name evolved from a last name to a first name. It's taught to be derived from the Irish word for king, which is ri, R-I with an accent on it. And uh, this is still the ordinary word in Irish for king. The a end at the end means little in Irish. It's a diminutive ending. So, Ryan does indeed mean little king. Back at the Ryan meetup, there were lots of folks in their 20s and 30s and 40s, but they managed to find the littlest king of them all. Ryan's nine months old. Can I ask why you decided to name him Ryan? Boys' names are really hard. There are like two that I like, and Ryan just happens to be one of them. He really wants to eat your microphone. The thing about names is that when you're a baby, you get no say in the matter. In life, we can choose our career, our friends, our partners, but our first names, 
not so much. Or so I thought. Meet Ryan Chen. I was actually born in China, and uh, when I came here, my parents were hoping that I could choose a name. And one of the options they gave me was Ryan, and they told me that it meant some kind of a, a, a king or something like that. A little king not by birth, but by choice. I feel like most people here probably were assigned the name, but you chose Ryan. I did, yeah. I had many options. I could have been a Zachariah. Thank God I wasn't a Zachariah. Uh, I could have been a Michael, a little bit bland. The other option was Kevin, which I dodged a bullet with that one. Can you imagine? A Kevin meetup? By now, the place was packed. There must have been about 70 Ryans, and the pride was through the roof. Every king, even a little king, needs a castle. And as luck would have it, I found Ryan Day Castle. And yeah, seriously, that's her name. I'm curious, what brings you here today? Clearly, the Ryans have brought me out. And obviously, the prospect of me being around so many others who uh, I feel like I also probably was surprised. Not a lot of black girl Ryans, so that's very fun. I asked her how she got the name. I knew that. It was a majority male name, but asking my parents why did they name me something, you know, a little bit more masculine. And they just said, why be a queen when you could be the king? So I thought that was great, and I've been running with it ever since. I caught up with Ryan Rose again, the organizer of the Ryan meetup. I don't think there is an icebreaker, which is beautiful. We all just feel like we already know each other. Any Ryan in this room could talk to anybody, and they just immediately bond. It's great energy. That's true. There was something egalitarian about the entire premise. Typical conversation norms went out the window at the Ryan meetup. You could skip the formalities, the whole hi my name is. You can just jump right in. And the one thing that people were the most eager to talk about? Ryan's. This is Ryan Chen again. He's the one who handpicked the name Ryan when he was 11. Brian's are natural enemies, right? So maybe they have this aura or voodoo that kind of prohibits our name from being spelled correctly. I think it's a, it's a conspiracy, right? The Brian conspiracy theorists were on high alert. This is Ryan Grippy. If I'm being honest, coming here, I thought this was a setup for the Brian's. The Brian's were just coming to trap us because we have always had a name so similar to Brian that people at Starbucks specifically mishear us and think our names are Brian. This definitely happens to me all the time. It's gotten to the point where I deliberately emphasize the R when saying my name. Like, Ryan. But people still call me Brian. Here's Ryan Neff again. I think there's a lot of times where it's confused with Brian, so actually there was one person that I had met um, at an event, and his name was Brian, and my name was Ryan. So we were introducing ourselves to each other, and he was like, hey, my name's Brian, and I would go, my name's Ryan. And he'd be like, no, no, my name's Brian. I'm like, yes, I know. Hi, Brian, my name's Ryan. And there was this back and forth, and it was super awkward, because I think we'd both gotten our names confused for each other's. Another Ryan, Ryan Mitchell, offered a diplomatic solution to the whole Ryan-Brian war. I feel like it comes with the Ryan lifestyle, you know? Like, you just have to own up to it, but also, you know, be calm about it, be humane about it. Just be like, hey, sorry, man. You know, I think you got that the wrong way. But, you know, that's not even, like, the worst of it. That's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, one time I went to a fast food restaurant and my name came up on the receipt as Rain. 
As the party was wrapping up, I couldn't help but feel like I was in on something, in on the joke, part of the in crowd. And I sort of wished that other people, people whose names are not Ryan, got to experience it all. At the end, I asked Ryan Rose, the organizer, if every name should have a meetup. I would love for other people to have meetups with the, their same name. I think it's beautiful and everybody should experience it at one point, except for Brian's. My thanks to the dozens of Ryans I met at the meetup. See you all at the next one. I will always love that segment and probably play it for all my friends named Brian in the future. (laughs) Now listen, um, that's all we've got for today. But before we go, Ryan, I just want to take an opportunity to say a few words to you. Because it has been a real pleasure to work with you here on The Takeaway. It has been so much fun to listen to you play with different strategies of storytelling. I mean, you can do the serious political history of a place like Mason, Tennessee. You brought us these like fully embodied experiences, like in your reporting on music for the deaf. I loved the piece on the emerging market of dry bars. And then, of course, the underground world of people named Ryan. Listen, I know that your creativity, your commitment to getting the story right, and your willingness to head out into the field, they're all going to be really enormous assets for you as you continue what I'm sure is going to be a great audio career. And I'm just hoping that this stop here at The Takeaway is at least as valuable as hanging out in Antarctica, scooping ice cream, and all of the other amazing gigs that you've had. Thanks, Melissa. It's been the honor of my career so far to work with you. Uh, I've learned so much from you, and I'm just like deeply, deeply grateful for the one year that we've had together and I will carry with me forward so much. So thank you. Thanks, Ryan. And we will be carrying your work with us as well. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry and this is The Takeaway.